welcome to episode 294 of the Spokesman Cycling Podcast. This show was engineered on 27th of March, 2022. The Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast is brought to you by Jensen USA. Jensen USA, where you will find a great selection of products at unbeatable prices with unparalleled customer service. Check them out at jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. Hey everybody, it's David from the Fredcast, and of course, I'm one of the hosts and producers of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast since 2006. For show notes, links, and other information, check out our website at www.the-spokesman.com. And now, here's my fellow host and producer, Carlton Reed and The Spokesman. Thanks, David, and welcome to the show, which is a cerebral hour with Marcel Moran of the University of California at Berkeley in San Francisco. Marcel has a new study just out on the bike lanes of Paris, especially those which popped up during the coronavirus lockdown. Do you remember that? Uh, these became known as coronapists, and critically, they're still active and are still boosting bicycling in the French capital. We also talk about network analysis, which is a lot more interesting than it sounds, and a whole bunch of other bike advocacy stuff, including how UC Berkeley has a strong interest in the activist planner an acknowledgement that scholars will want to build a better world. So Marcel, thank you ever so much for talking uh, to me today. And I know today is also, as you've just told me this, uh, is also your publication day. So congratulations on your publication. So so tell me what we're going to be talking about here, because this is about uh, coronavirus, uh, yes? Yeah, no, thanks for having me on. Uh, today, my paper came out uh, in the journal Transport Findings, and it's called Treating COVID with Bike Lanes. And what I wanted to do was I wanted to put Paris's kind of growing network of, of bike lanes and particularly how they short-circuited their process for it in the context of COVID to kind of rapidly expand it. I wanted to put that into spatial context. I wanted to understand the quality of those new lanes and how they relate to the network that existed before the pandemic. So why... Why Paris? I mean, obviously, I know why Paris, because Paris was was the poster child for for these pop-ups during COVID. It was one of the first uh, to to really go for it. But by the same token, you're not in Paris. So why Paris? Yeah, that's right. I'm, I'm based in Northern California, uh, although I moved I moved to Paris for the project. So the reason why Paris, um, I, Paris has been getting a lot of press under the leadership of Mayor Hidalgo in terms of over the last five years or so, really increasing uh, their standard bike lanes outside of the pandemic. Why I find Paris to be such a useful case study is because Copenhagen and Amsterdam and German cities have been kind of studied uh to an extreme degree in terms of their very effective bike infrastructure. But Paris is actually, you know, not really considered or hasn't been considered a bicycle haven. And anyone who biked there, you know, pre-2015 would, would never categorize it as such. And so I think Paris is such a useful case for other planners and urbanists around the world because its rate of change has been so dramatic 
And its starting place not that long ago is quite similar, actually, to where many cities find themselves, where there's some level of bike infrastructure, but many, many gaps and many, many shortcomings. Mm. And so it's actually much more relatable. No one can turn into Amsterdam in a period of five years. But what Paris has done in five or six years um, actually is much more attainable uh, for, for the rest of the kind of uh, transportation audience. Um, and I also, I find that you have this kind of interesting social construction changing too, where Parisians are now presented with this new kind of streetscape. Uh, and you're just seeing the growth and ridership take off as well. Mm. Now in your, in your paper, which I, which I have read, cause it's, it's quite a short paper. It is. Yep. Short um, report. Yep. It, it's, it's, it's short and sweet. Um, it, uh, but it's, it's fascinating. And, and, and what I, I, I liked about, uh, uh, your paper was you, you're absolutely talking about, you know, the, the network capabilities here, the, the, the way they're plugging gaps, mm-hmm. uh, with, with some of these routes. And uh, you, you, you kind of, you, you talk about the, the, you know, the Dutch style, mm-hmm. uh, network approach, but just explain that because it's not just about whacking in some great bikeways on you know rudy rivoli you've got to have bikeways where you're not going to be mm-hmm. expecting loads of people because you've got to fill in those gaps so explain that mm-hmm. that that network approach that is the key to all of this this is this is a nuanced part of of bike planning and what i really wanted to shine a light on in this paper so there's increasing evidence that what matters to riders in terms of their um, willingness to bike in a city is not the overall length of a bike network. It's not the overall amount of kilometers of a bike lane, but it's how interconnected each lane is, meaning how many lanes overlap with other lanes, which then provide cyclists with a continuous path to reach their destination where the greatest percentage of it um, is within bike lanes. And for a big key, at intersections, they can transition from one bike lane to another bike lane. And so when I was reading about, before I moved to Paris, I was reading about Paris increasing the length of its network. But the question I had was, but how is it changing the density of its network? Mm-hmm. How are the number of connections changing? And so what I did was, Paris has a very robust um, public data platform where they share information. And so going back to 2005, I looked 2005 to 2020 for every single lane segment that was installed. I calculated how many other lanes it connected to at the time it was installed. So you're making this kind of time specific calculation. So you're saying, okay, in 2006, how many other lanes were available that could connect to in 2007, you know, et cetera. And what I find is that there's this increasing trend of connectivity in Paris's network that's completely accelerated by their Corona uh, bike lanes or what they call Corona peace days. And so the bike lanes that came in during the pandemic are not just protected to a greater extent. That was another thing I found. They're not just more bi-directional to a greater extent, but they connect to a high, they average a higher number of interconnections with other lanes. And that's really going to kind of um, supercharge the benefit you're going to give to Parisian cyclists. So given that, do you, th- <laughs> it's a loaded question here, but do you think they really thought about this? Because I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to frame that question a little bit because mm-hmm. here in the UK and I guess in other places, there were some pretty daft bike lanes put in, Yeah, you know, where you think, why did you do that? It's almost as though there were, you know, some local authorities, certainly in the UK mm-hmm. were almost just ticking boxes 
and just putting a bike lane in, which pretty much just annoyed motorists in in, in many respects. I, I know it annoys motorists where you no matter where you put them <laughs> in, but some of them were really strategic roads where you probably didn't expect any cyclists to be using there because there wouldn't be the network connections there anyway. Mm-hmm. It would just annoy people, and also you just think they probably haven't thought this through, and then they ripped them out. Right, so the right. question is, given given that as a as a as a preamble, mm-hmm. do you think Paris? actually got it right because they were thinking in network terms do you think when they put those Mm -hmm. bike lanes in they were the right places it's such a great question and so i would say yes and the way i answered that question was because i know the year in which every single bike lane was installed i could map how the network changed and grew over time and so what i do is i create four these four different time periods 2005 to 2009 2010, 2014, 2015, 2019, and then 2020. And what you see is you see the spatial decision-making of Paris's bicycle planners changing, where their first decision spatially was to create this kind of ring of lanes around the periphery of the city. But what's so interesting is the second time period, they're actually doing exactly what you're describing in England. They're just doing a number of very short lanes. They're not interconnected really at all. um, And they're not necessarily primary routes. And what's so gratifying about looking at the 2020 map is they really focus. You can tell. I mean, what's so interesting is you could spend three months interviewing planners or you could spend three months mapping it like I did. And you're 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 revealing the decision making that they did. And what happened Mm -hmm. in 2020 was they made all of these connections from Paris's periphery to the city center. Um, doing long connected bike lanes that then filled really meaningful gaps. And there's also, there's another, I spent November in, in England. And there's, so there's another important difference I found between London's bike lanes and Paris is that so much of the bike planning in London emphasizes these kind of quiet ways where mm-hmm. you're explicitly choosing non-busy commercial streets to kind of build out these cycleways. And what's so fascinating about Paris, and which I think is works better, is Paris emphasized its grandest boulevards, which are full of destinations that cyclists want to reach. So the challenge I had in London was you're diverting cyclists basically away from the kind of commercial, civic, and other destinations they're trying to reach. But Paris said, we're going to choose our primary streets, uh, A, that are the most direct um, paths between major points of interest, but B, um, they're also giving cyclists the kind of, uh, they're giving cyclists kind of the grand uh, real estate that cars otherwise have enjoyed unfettered. And so I think Paris really, really thread the needle in terms of the kind of spatial thought um, thought process. And you can just see it in the map that it's all these key routes from uh, the o- outer Paris to the center along the Seine, uh, from major destinations like, like République um, and Place de Concorde, um, and really the left, the left bank got a, a number of important north to south routes as well. So this is this is textbook how you do it then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean it's really this is again why I think Paris is such a great case study is because um, they're 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 improving the network in an incremental fashion. And they're 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 starting to benefit from uh, this increased network effect over time. Where because they laid the groundwork starting in 2005, in that decade, they laid the groundwork for this kind of initial network that was starting to have some network coherence. In the last te- in the last um, seven years or so, they've really um, basically looked hard at this and emphasized quality. 
uh, connection and location. So that's the challenge when I hear, when I read articles or, or hear people or hear cities boasting about the length of their network, mm-hmm. the length doesn't tell you that much, right? And so you'll see this a lot, like Milan has this ambitious new plan for a bike network. Um, but I don't want to just know the length of it. I want to know where it's taking, it can take cyclists to, uh, what level of comfort it provides to riders and how each lane uh, relates to the pre-existing lanes. It's the same way, like we ha- what we have to do, and sometimes bike planners and bike scholars don't think about this, is we have to think about this how you would think about a road network, right? A road mm-hmm. network that was very disconnected from itself and full of dead ends and cul-de-sacs and gaps would be really non-functional. And sometimes we don't apply that scrutiny to bike networks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> bingo with a capital B, absolutely <laughs> with a capital A. Um, uh, uh, now, do you think, do you have strong confidence that because of all the, the, what, what you've just said there, um, that these, um, the, the pop-ups and the ones that in, in the previous years will last the distance? And again, I, I'll, 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 I'll kind of frame that by by the uk example in that a lot of them did disappear possibly because the motorists were moaning Mm -hmm. so the councils just you know they 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 just they just lost faith and they just didn't have the guts to keep going Mm -hmm. but also because potentially they were actually not in the the most brightest of 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 -hmm. places anyway but uh, nothing as as far as i know nothing has actually been removed from paris so paris is is unique in that it hasn't taken these things away after the 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 the, the the lockdowns have been over so do you do you have confidence that they will stay around you know it's so, it's so interesting because parisians are not are not uh foreign to protesting by any by any regard <laughs> um so i nope. think there's a few things happening that that bode well for for corona pieces uh in paris one is that mayor hidalgo uh, in her first term, uh, doing really bold action in terms of sustainable transportation, uh, was handily reelected. Uh, and so she's now serving mm-hmm. in her second term. And, and, uh, since then, uh, she had, her administration has released an even more ambitious plan, uh, cycling plan for London, uh, for Paris to be finished by 2026. And by 2026, the idea is that basically any major street in, in the entire city uh, should be bikeable, should have some kind of bike infrastructure. So you have the political kind of uh, leadership of Paris behind this, and she has a wonderful team of, of planners. Uh, the other thing that's happening um, is that Parisians are taking to cycling uh, like these, these facilities are being used in great number, and so there's a number of different ways you can measure this. There are um, there are electric electronic counters. Uh, people that um, use apps like Strava actually are pa- and Google Maps are having their data kind of passively collected and aggregated. Apple is doing things like this where they're aggregating uh, transportation by mode, so we can see that uh, cycling is increasing. And I think from a lot of evidence is getting more demographically diverse. Um, the other thing is that uh, unlike the kind of London situation, um, this is a really key difference. So in London, uh, the boroughs have much greater control over the bike lanes. And so if you're biking from one borough to the next in London, you can kind of mm-hmm. see a difference, not only in um, the amount of, si- of bike lanes, but in the quality. Uh, and so you can see that some are broad and well-painted and protected and others are slivers that, that give cyclists hardly, hardly anything. Um, and the difference is that in Paris, it's been a centralized program. And so if you're in the left bank or you're in Belleville, Belleville or you're, um, uh, you're over, uh, um, by the, 
Eiffel Tower or wherever you are, uh, the bike lanes are much more uniform and consistent. And so you're not having this kind of patchwork uh, level of quality. They're not entirely uh can, they're not entirely consistent in terms of penetrance for every neighborhood. There's some very wealthy neighborhoods in the west side of the city that don't have as, as much coverage. But um, there's a more kind of uniform, standardized approach that lends itself less to localized politicians uh, at the neighborhood level kind of creating problems or having those removed like you're seeing it in the, at the borough scale. Um, mm. I think, the, I think the, the final reason I don't see them uh, being removed is that since uh, 2021, uh, ended. Paris has actually gone back to its standard construction processes for bike lanes and plowed forward. So one of the things I noted in my paper is that the Corona peace days are different in terms of construction. And so the, the basic difference is that uh, pre-pandemic, Paris would use these long stone slabs to protect a bike lane to create what we call a vertical barrier. And that took heavy construction. You had to saw open the concrete, place those in, uh, re- um, you know, saw open the, the asphalt and, and so you, you would have this kind of big construction scene. And so the, Im, the inc- important difference for the Corona pieces was they could be installed in a matter of hours where they were staggered concrete blocks placed on the sidewalk, not, not cut mm. on the road, not cut into it and kind of sealed. And then you had plastic posts. But what gives me confidence that Paris is going to plow forward is that once the uh, Corona peace day phase ended and we realized we're in this endemic kind of situation with COVID, um, they've kept going with the standard construction processes, bike lanes and, and uh, all 2022 so far, uh, we're in late March, uh, they've been increasing the kind of standard construction uh, bike lane. And so I don't think there's any uh, signal either politically in terms of acti- the bike activity or in terms of the planning process. I don't see any slow, sl- slowing down, particularly with the Olympics mm. coming up. Mm, yeah, yeah, good point. Uh, I guess cyclists and 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 Parisians in general uh, have got Baron Hausmann to thank uh, <laughs> for many of these these uh, uh, Corona pieces because Paris does have some pretty mammothly wide roads. Mm, yeah. It's almost American in their <laughs> their width. Yes. They are really like Champs Elysees. That yes. you can fit in, you could fit in Olympic sized bike lanes mm-hmm. on that road and not take any any real genuine space away from pedestrians or motorists. So you've got some pretty stonkingly wide roads in in Paris. Does, does that help that you do have the space? If if you have the political will, mm-hmm. you absolutely have got the space in Paris. No, it's absolutely true. And you can think of Avenue uh, de la Opera as another prime example. I mean, it's a massively wide street. And yeah, and this goes back to the to the kind of period between the 1850s and the 1880s, where you have this houseminization of Paris with these broad avenues and the standard uh, row, row construction. Um, the benefit is, is that there's more room for the city to work with in terms of adding bicycle infrastructure without removing all of the car-centric infrastructure. That said, one of the things I was able to do with historical street images is ask the question, what are these Corona Peace Days replacing? Because that's another thing that's sometimes left out of our conversation about bike lanes. You could say we're adding in 47 kilometers of Corona pieces, which was my count based on public data and some observation. But the question is, what did those 47 come in the place of? Did we just take a painted bike lane and add a barrier or did we make a new bike lane? And so what I found was um, you had two street uses being replaced. 
on-street parking and mixed traffic. Mm -hmm. Um, And Mm -hmm. so what's interesting is Paris is not doing this painlessly in terms of motorists. They're not just saying, well, we have so much room, we can can keep all of the street uses equivalent. Um, And so... Uh, what's interesting is there's a scholar who, in, uh, who talked about like we're at what he calls a mobility stalemate that in a big dense city to give any one mode of transportation space, you have to inherently take it away from a different mode where we have this kind of stalemate and Paris is no different, even with the really broad avenues. And so, um, uh, one way you could think about the Corona Peace Day project and the broader kind of bike bike lane project in Paris is that it's the largest parking removal project in the city's history. Um, mm-hmm. And what's interesting about Hidalgo's administration is they actually don't shy away from that rhetoric in terms of explicitly noting that they're part of their work is to remove parking every year. And uh, there are Scandinavian cities that have emphasized that explicitly. That's harder to do in American cities. I think that's mm-hmm. true in the, in the UK as well to kind of have this explicitly mm-hmm. thing. But but Paris has done it. I just want to make sure um, to, to get the numbers right here. So half of the Corona Peace Days replaced traffic lanes. So you're taking away a lane that was used by cars, by taxis, by, by trucks. Uh, and then a third replaced on-street parking. And then there was a kind of a remaining 18% that just narrowed the other existing lanes. But half, so half of these are removing car lanes uh, for travel. And so it's not, it's not true that there's been no kind of driver opposition or resistance. Um, there certainly, there have been some uh, mass, mass press articles like in the New York times where mm. people have been quoted with, with certainly uh, descent towards these because they're not just because the streets are wide doesn't mean um, someone's not losing out. Now, I think that the challenge, of course, is um, this becomes much harder on a narrower street. And obviously, Paris is full of narrow, narrow streets as well mm-hmm. that, that, inter- that are on the sides of these grand avenues. And so um, what you're seeing with the Corona piece days is that they emphasize the grand avenues where there's actually uh, more room to work with. Uh, although a number of them occur on smaller streets and they removed basically there was a on-street parking lane and a traffic lane and that the traffic the on-street parking lane was completely removed for long sections of these lanes so they're they're doing the work and not shying away from the thorniest parts of bike planning see i'm imagining some very very angry french people (laughs) on shock jock style radio stations (laughs) calling in and absolutely going ballistic over it because i know exactly what would happen yes i mean you you take the slightest you know breath Mm -hmm. of a of a sliver of some space away from a motorist in the uk and i'm guessing pretty much in the the same perhaps even worse in the us and you will get a metric ton of abuse from Mm -hmm. uh, partly from the the, the standard people who would you know naturally come down on you anyway but there's just mass media would would also come down on anything like this so this is always the difficulty for planners in the uk is Mm -hmm. And it's interesting. It'd be interesting to see how that, or how you think they've done it in in Paris. Is um, the, the the abuse that plan- mm-hmm. uh, planners will get death threats? They will yeah. get genuinely. They'll have to call the police in because people will be out to genuinely kill them. Mm-hmm. So, how do you think Paris? Maybe they have gone through that, and they've just they're just toughing it out. Or is there something else? that's happening in Paris that, that the Hidalgo administration is able to just mm-hmm. f- ignore that. 
or maybe doesn't get it. So what, how politically have they managed to do it? It's so interesting. And, uh, you know, every weekend I, I, I stayed in Paris for, for last fall and every single weekend there were mass protests. Uh, but there, and we had the, the yellow vest movement. But by the time I was in Paris, the protests were all about COVID and they were about vaccine mandates and, and the, and the, they had this kind of pass sanitaire, this digital pass that you had to keep on your phone to enter into cafes and bars and those types of things. And that, that was drawing the bulk of the ire from uh, from uh, protesting Parisians at that point. So it's a little interesting, I think, in some ways, because the COVID politics became so inflamed, in some ways, the bike infrastructure kind of had a, a smoother path. I think Paris, I mean- it's under there, the radar. Exactly, a little under the radar. I, there's a few things I think Paris has done strategically during this rollout that in some ways can mollify the worst criticism. One thing is that they've emphasized uh, low delivery loading zones. And so uh, one of the things you could see with the fresh paint on Parisian streets that had had these Corona pieces installed is that somewhere on the street, designated delivery loading zones have been installed. Uh, and and that, that can be one of the biggest critics of removing on-street parking are all the deliveries that have to take place. Obviously, Paris is known around the world for its mixed use street life. Every street has a cafe and a bar and a restaurant and a store and, and those types of things. And so urban d- freight deliveries are a constant kind of piece of, of a Parisian street. And so I think um, taking that street use very seriously and not removing that the same way that kind of personal on-street parking was removed, I think that was a, a key piece. The other thing that Hidalgo has said in her interviews Uh, around a lot of her policies is she makes this very interesting gendered argument. And she says, if you look at who owns cars in Paris and who travels by other means, particularly transit, it's the, it's largely men who own cars and it's largely, it's a majority of Parisian transit riders are women. And so in some ways she has uh, felt comfortable making these changes because she knows what constituency she is fighting for and fighting for the the rights of non-car travelers who very often we know are lower income, more often minority and more often women. And so it's been interesting to see her um, not shy away from that criticism and reframe it in a way of providing more transportation equity. Now, mm. certainly, um, there's no, uh, it's not, um, criticism has not been absent. I think what's been interesting is I think the timing of her reelection, uh, the release of the 2026 bike plan and the continuation of the standard bike lanes following this Corona peace day period indicate to me resolve in city hall to, to keep going. Uh, and I think what's also happening is you're seeing the kind of this 15 minute city idea come to life, uh, which is that you're seeing many more parents uh, use cargo bikes and they're dropping off their kids to school in these and shopping for groceries in these. Um, and you're seeing, um, you're kind of seeing Parisian culture slowly embrace this infrastructure. Uh, if you're in some neighborhoods in the morning uh, for the morning commute, the morning rush, uh, these bike lanes are, are full and there's real traffic. Uh, if you're t- So there's a uh, Sebastopol, which is the kind of major north to south route in the right bank of Paris, which basically goes uh, from the River Seine to Gare du Nord, the main northern train station. And that's this wonderful, long protected bike lane. I mean, there's real, there's real traffic in that lane of all 
types and groups of people using that to, to commute, to get to work, to get to school, to get to uh, their errands. And so I think Hidalgo is counting on the support and use of these lanes as drowning out the, the, the smaller level of criticism. Mm. Um, and you, you've talked about protected bike lanes, but you've also got protection by or separation mm -hmm. by time. So going mm -hmm. back to the, 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 the deliveries, so mm -hmm. HGVs, trucks mm -hmm. that have got to make deliveries, isn't there some form of they, they, they brought in, you know, that deliveries have to be done at a certain time. So it's, it's separation uh, by time of day. Yeah, is so is that is something that's, that's worked? And this, this varies by street, but you're absolutely right. So there's a number of neighborhoods um, that have pedestrianized sections, um, but the the timing in which that they are pedestrianized, either by signage or by physical barriers, uh, generally is uh, basically mid-afternoon through the evening. And so mornings are when uh, these streets are allowed to be used by, de by delivery vehicles. Uh, and so in the right bank, there's a number of these kind of wonderful, like uh, right by Centre Pompidou, there's this wonderful uh, corridor um, of restaurants and bars and shops and all these types of things that's pedestrianized in the evenings. But in the, if you bike through in the morning, um, as I would often do to get down to the center of the city, you would see that full of, of these kind of delivery goods trucks. And so that's one of the things that I think American cities never do as well is saying we can modify street uses by time of day and not just by, um, Mm. not make a 24 seven rule. We, in the U S we tend to have this kind of all or nothing approach where like times square is now pedestrianized in New York city, but it's pedestrianized 24 seven, this large chunk of it. Um, but of course we could do this with much more nimbly, uh, if we use the, the, if we use the time of day to our advantage. And San Francisco is actually starting to do this with, with these kind of major commercial districts where, um, you're pedestrianizing it from lunch, basically, or 4 p.m., excuse me, onward through the evening, which maintains its access for, for goods delivery during the day. Um, Paris is doing that more often for pedestrians, less often in terms of uh, bike lane, no bike lane by time. Mm. Mm. Okay. Now, um, I'm sure there's, 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 you can explain this, but data nerds, I'm, I'm, I'm presuming here, <laughs> Are gonna, I'm going to go back to connectivity here. Mm -hmm. uh, data nerds are going to have some sort of mechanism, a quotient, some some way of working out network yep. connectivity. So the work that you've done there isn't just you know. Th there's lots and lots of lines yes. on maps. Yes, is is on your PDF. Um, <laughs> but there must be quite apart from just a, a whole bunch of you know squiggly lines. <laughs> there must be some sort of program that data nerds like you use to say this is a percentage or whatever, however mm -hmm. you measure it connected um, mm -hmm. a road network for motorists you know okay that's 100 percent connected right so is there such a, yes. a, a quotient that you use and and tell me about it yeah absolutely i hope this study can be kind of a case that others could apply the same methodology to cities they live in should the data be available and even if the city doesn't provide this data there's a wealth of data from uh, uh, sources like OpenStreetMap that you could export and do this type of analysis. So network analysis is a, is a scientific field on its own that um, that others, and I followed in their path, I certainly not the first to do this, that others have tried to adapt to transportation planning and particularly bike planning. So there's actually a range of network statistics that you can run on a bike network. There are these things called small world networks uh, where you're looking at actually like um, 
how lanes, uh, how lanes interconnect in a more kind of complex way, uh, like which lanes have the most connections uh, to every other lane, that type of thing. And sometimes in a city like Paris, you could, a simple way to think of this is if there's a grand avenue that has a bike lane, and then you have lots of little bike lanes that branch off of it, you can kind of realize that that grand avenue is the key link in that entire network. So there's many ways to kind of do this. The software I use very uh, specifically um, is I used ArcMap, uh, which is uh, which is um, a private um, company called Esri that builds this, but most people that have some kind of university subscription or access can use it. Uh, there's also, um, uh, there's a QGIS, which is open source and very popular among the kind of um, GIS academic community. So there, you certainly don't have to pay for this if you don't want to. So the question I was doing uh, was I tried to make it as, as simple and replicable as possible. And the key thing I did was time. So what, what happens with most analyses of bike lane networks that I wanted to, to, to I wanted to, um, change slightly is most networks are analyzed at one point in time. So you would look at the bike network in 2020 and you would say, how interconnected is it? Or you could say, what's the average uh, length or how, what's the branching logic, those types of things. What I wanted to do was actually create a statistic for that um, for each year. So you could get the longitudinal change in that. So basically the key number for me was year of installation. And then from there, what I did was I basically turned back the clock to the very beginning. And so for each year, I'm creating a time-specific connectivity um, uh, figure. And very specifically, it's for uh, each lane segment, how many other lanes it intersects with. Um, and so that's as complicated as it gets. And then what the what I'm able to show is that over time the number of lanes that have a higher number of connections, that share keeps growing. And the number of lanes that have zero or just one connection, that share keeps shrinking. So that's as complicated as I did it. There are certainly much deeper network analyses approaches. Uh, what, but the key for me with this entire paper is I always want to create I always want to do statistics that are legible to the general public and actionable to planners. And so if you're a planner in a different city trying to wrap your head around the connectivity of your network, it's not more, much more complicated to how many lanes is each lane connecting to, which then is going to create this system that gives riders the most continuous path from their destination. And we know mm. that that tends to really matter when you survey riders um, about what, what they're looking for. It's the, if they want protected bike lanes and they want interconnected bike lanes. And so that I used mm. ArcMap. I use Cardo a bit. I did not use QGIS, but that's certainly available for those who want fr a free platform. Uh, and these were all shape files that I, that I downloaded from Paris's open data platform. They're available to everybody too. I never want to use proprietary data that other researchers can't get their hands on. So any planner in any city uh, worth their salt could fire up all these different uh, software platforms, could analyze their own city, and you know with a you know press the where do I put bike lanes button, mm -hmm. they could get the same information out, and then it comes down to well they probably know where they've got to put these in. This isn't rocket science. That's right. um, it it becomes down to to you know what do you value? Mm -hmm. uh, that is it's what you you spend the money on. Mm -hmm. So you know it's, it's budget and it's 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 
political will. Yeah, yeah, it, it really is. It's, it's not. A- it's not. It's not geographical. It, it, these these aren't problems of where do we put these things in. I think people would probably know, and, and certainly the tools are there. We know where to put them in. It's just we can't get them in for the the very well known reasons. That's that's absolutely right. And there's this interesting kind of thing that happens where. Um, there's been a lot of work thinking about where should bike lanes go and trying to uh, determine that based on where ridership is the highest. There's a there's a this counterintuitive problem with that logic, it, and the and the phrase goes: you don't build a bridge based on where you see lots of people swimming. And so the idea is that we may want to build bike lanes where we're already seeing lots of people biking because we believe there's some kind of latent mm-hmm. demand to bike in that place. But we may also want to build bike lanes where we don't see lots of people biking because they're not biking there because they don't have a protected way to do so. And so sometimes planners can walk themselves into the trap of only providing bike lanes uh, on these kind of um, lower traffic streets where cyclists already are. But the idea is the planner can actually intervene on the highest traffic streets where actually there's probably the most benefit to cyclists, the same way the motorists are getting the most benefit. And so there's a little bit, it's exactly what you said, there's little question where bike lanes should go. And a simple way to think about it is the bike network should be equivalent to the road network, right? Like we, we should mm-hmm. not have this huge distinction between the road network and the bike network. People want to reach uh, all destinations of a city safely be a bicycle, the same way people in cars want to be able to reach all destinations of a city. And so in some ways, the challenge, and this is what Paris is proposing for 2026, and I, I'm really excited to track this. The challenge is to say, not where should bike lanes go and bike infrastructure, but where shouldn't it be? And that's a, that there really are very few places we shouldn't have safe bike infrastructure. And so the idea um, is to say, like, let's make these two networks closer and closer to equivalence. Now, the, the digital twin concept uh, where you, you, you construct a, a basically a, a version of your city in in a in a computer and then you run the various mm-hmm. uh, models mm-hmm. i mean presumably uh that that can also you can you can build a, a bike network overnight mm-hmm. uh if it's just in your in in your computer but the, the problem comes down to yeah but it, it's actually physically putting them in that that mm. tends to be the problem mm-hmm. again so i'm i'm kind of giving planners a let out here planners <laughs> know what they've got to do uh this is not a planning problem this right. is always a political problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it tends it tends to be a budget and, and political problem. Uh, what I would say is um, there's some really interesting data being leveraged in the transit planning field right now that I think is applicable also to bike planning. And so there's there are these cool platforms. Remix is one example uh, where uh, it allows in a digital and uh, a browser-based platform, uh, it allows uh, transit planners to... Uh, uh, pilot a new bus route, just as an example, on, on their screen. And then the the, um, the software pulls in all this interesting information in terms of density and demographics and population. And so it says, okay, if you build the bus, le- the bus route here, you have 100,000 people within a quarter mile radius, and this would really serve low-income riders and those types of things. And you could do the exact same thing with your bike planning. You could say, okay, we want bike planning actually to be built in a really progressive way. We want to emphasize... Because uh, we know car ownership is lower among lower income residents. We want to emphasize bike planning right in our poorer neighborhoods. And we want to link them to employment centers and to libraries and to universities and to all the types of things that a, a person wants for full for full civic participation. And so there's certainly 
in large cities, there certainly are decision points for planners to make and they can think in terms of bike lanes because they're not going to have a full network, a full network that's equivalent to the street network overnight. So I understand there's a need to prioritize. And, and, and I'm, I'm the person sitting in the academic scene, you know, kind of charting this, but I understand the realities of being in the trenches and the difficulty of, of neighborhood opposition. I don't want to, I don't want to minimize that at all. And so I think the challenge for planners is, what what are you going to prioritize? Who are you going to prioritize, and where? Um, and there are decision there are decision points you can use to aid that process. And I think uh, I think kind of income is a huge one. I think um, air pollution. And so you're seeing a lot of European cities. They're very explicit that their bike plans are about curbing air pollution. You don't see that mm-hmm. as much in American cities where the idea is about con- cutting traffic and, and, and climate change and those types of things. But local air pollution can really, uh, can really be one way to approach this. And so I think planners have a kind of range of options in, way- in which ways to prioritize this. It's exciting to see Paris do this at a scale that is bringing the entire city with it. Hmm. So Paris, that must be a pretty exciting place to go. I mean, yeah, yeah, presumably you got funding. Did you get funding for this? Yeah, I'm, I'm really lucky. Uh, so I'm a PhD student at the University of California, Berkeley. Um, and I have, I've, I've, uh, I have funding from my university, which has been really generous. Uh, Berkeley also has, I'll give them a shout out, this wonderful uh, Institute for European Studies. Uh, and I've been really uh, fortunate to receive their grants. Uh, before this trip, I did a research project in Vienna, uh, Austria. And this year I'll be traveling to Stockholm, Sweden uh, with grants from, from that institution. So um, only good things to say about uh, my research support at Berkeley. So, so you weren't like a like a, a you know nineteenth century artist in a you know starving in a garret somewhere. <laughs> you you were funded, so you, but you had an exciting time, fantastic place for you for you to be, but also kind of an awkward time to be there too, because you're obviously studying you know infrastructure that's put in place during mm-hmm. COVID, mm-hmm. but you're there during COVID, so yeah. it was also an awkward time to be there. Yeah, I mean the fall of 2021. Uh, I th- I was very lucky to thread the needle uh, between uh, surges and, and these COVID waves. And so the time, the, the three months I was there, um, the past sanitary system was present and basically all destinations were open. I could go to the museums. I could go to restaurants. I could go to office buildings. Uh, I could rent co-working space. Um, I could... Uh, um, travel on public transit. Uh, there were no kind of curfews. There was no, I mean, mm. I will say the Parisian lockdowns from what, how they were described did sound quite, um, uh, terrible. And people really were kind of scarred from the, you know, the limited access they had. And they were, mm. they had to cr- hold these notes and show notes to police officers if they wanted to go to the grocery store, that type of thing. Um, mm-hmm. I think what was so interesting is, um, there were a few other pieces of Paris's kind of transportation COVID, uh, response that aren't in my paper that I certainly experienced. So one is that um, they expanded a lot of sidewalks for the benefit of pedestrians. So in the shopping district of Marais, um, you had you didn't have necess- there were some new bike lanes, but you had these kind of uh, ball plastic bollards that were allowing sidewalk traffic to spill into the street uh, for these kind of really dense shopping districts. Um, you also had a lot of pedestrianization, new pedestrianization, and it was called this kind of Paris program, Respire or, or Clean Air, Breathe. And so in my, where I lived um, in a neighborhood, there were a number of streets that had um, metal fencing that closed off a lot of side streets and number of streets that schools were on. 
uh, that completely closed off those streets to automobile traffic. And so you were kind of seeing these streets return to uh, cafes and children could play on them and parents could wait there to pick up their children. And so it was a multi-pronged approach. Obviously, I dug into the bike side, but that wasn't all. Um, there was also... Uh, there. Um, they're increasing tree planting. I mean, there's, it's a really kind of all of the above strategy in terms of tackling carbon emissions, air pollution, and what we call vision zero, which is trying to reduce pedestrian and uh, bicyclists and road fatalities. And so it's all working together. Um, I think for those who have not been to Paris in a while and are interested in the kind of cycling experience, you will be blown away by uh by your cycling experience there it's certainly there is room for improvement and the city has has noted that in its new plans i mean they have they have a ways to go but it's so satisfying to see it in motion what about scooters because because mm-hmm. paris does have it's not just bikes and it's not just mm-hmm. there they've right. got uh, the Vélib, the bike share which i i think w- was almost a catalyst for a lot of this mm-hmm. you know Vélib, when they put that in mm-hmm. You know, I, you know, I was there from the beginning when I when I first started using Believe, yes. and then it just I've, I've seen the blossoming of the, of that scheme. It's been fantastic, mm-hmm. uh, very similar to London in many ways. Yes. In that you know you put bike share in, and and and, and, and certainly certainly in a, a certain demographic, mm-hmm. it's certainly. I would say Paris. It seems to be more tourists than it is in London. But anyway, mm-hmm. um, so you, you've got scooters, yeah, as well. Yeah, so what they, call, in, they in, call in they call French scooters, twatinet. Uh, mm. rather than scooter. But uh, so there's a few things happening. And what I think what you're seeing is you're seeing a number of different, what we call micro mobility devices, shared bikes and scooters. You're seeing them at different price points and vehicle form factors. Uh, so there's Vélib, which is, yeah, the, the world's basic, one of the first real large municipal bike share systems. Uh, and then you have a number of electric dockless bikes. Uh, so Lime mm. has a really large presence in Paris where you can rent these um these dockless bikes, then you have scooters, you have some scooters uh, that have um, uh, shocks and, and uh, better brakes and all these types of things. The, the, the quality of the equipment on the scooter side has really improved since those launched mm. a few years ago. And what I think what's wonderful, the way I would describe it is you have this positive feedback loop where you have an increasing number of options for people to travel not in the cars that's bringing a number of people into the fold, into the biking tent, what I would say. It's also giving them the point of view of taking a good hard look at the bike infrastructure. And so that's creating a bigger and bigger constituency that is going to be supportive of more bike lanes. And then more bike lanes are going to draw more people into non-car modes. You have one other Mm. Paris feature that's actually supercharging people's interest in bikes, or two others, I would say. One is strikes on transit. And so uh, there was this period where um, uh, in, during, the, during COVID where you had a really large transit strike and you had more ridership of shared bikes and scooters than has ever happened in Paris because these, you know, the, these private firms track their ridership. And so you had this mm. explosion of, of, of transit usage. I had friends in Paris who said, this is my first time taking it, but I have to get to work and the, and the uh, Paris Metro isn't running. You have to imagine a number of those riders were first time riders that are otherwise now going to be interested in using this. Um, and the other thing you have happening besides the uh, transit strike is that France also created a COVID benefit around uh, bike repairs. And so there was um, a voucher effectively or a rebate you could mm. get. I don't want, I don't want to mess the number up. I think it was something like 40 or 50 euros. Uh, and you could, you could have that paid by the government to fix up your bike. 
And so people that had long had bikes kind of wasting away in their basement or garage or, or hallway uh, could take those and get those fixed. And so you have all these mm. types of things, bringing more people into the bike world, they're going to be more sensitive to and um, demanding of bike infrastructure. More bike lanes are going to bring more people into that fold. And so, I mean, it's just, I, I needed to get there last year because I just knew the timing um, was so unique in terms of this major world city on its way to becoming a major biking city. Uh, and it's, it's thrilling. It really is. And it's, you know, it's wonderful for all the other reasons. Paris is wonderful. Now you're an academic, mm -hmm. so you shouldn't be saying it's wonderful. It should be, you should be measuring this. Who cares whether it's wonderful or not? You know, you're, you're, you're passionate. You're, you're, you're right. totally, totally. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but this is what I want to get onto because I have read your CV, your your academic CV. Mm -hmm. You are clearly, you know, this is not a you know a one time a bit of research mm -hmm. you've done, and you're going to go on to you know completely different sectors. You are invested in this space. It, mm -hmm. it, it'd be fair to say, and and and, and when at the end of this conversation, and we when you, and you give your. Uh, I'll, I'll put the CV in, in the notes so oh, okay, people can then you. see the, sure. the, the breadth of stuff that you've done in this, in, in effect, this, this, mm -hmm. you know, my and in bike share and in, 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 in bicycles, basically, mm -hmm. and in, and some pedestrian stuff that you've, you've done. Mm -hmm. However, uh, when you, so I picked you up there when you said, you know, how wonderful this is, and that's maybe you're a little bit too much invested mm -hmm. in this sphere. So how much of, uh, your 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 academic rigor mm -hmm. is actually um, maybe influenced mm -hmm. by the fact that you're really passionate about this. So my question is, how uh, uh, removed are you mm -hmm. from this academically when you are clearly mm -hmm. very passionate about this? And it's almost the you know the the the, the academic versus the activist, but. That also means you, you may be not quite so dispassionate as somebody who isn't interested in this at all mm -hmm. and can look at it from that point of view. So describe mm -hmm. the activism versus academic uh, aspects of your work and, and your outlook. Yeah, it's a, it's a really fantastic question. And I will I will 100% say that um, I, I bike and take transit everywhere, both in Paris and, and wherever I've lived. I've always, I, thankfully, I've been lucky to live in large cities with uh, ample uh, transit, Boston, DC, Chicago, San Francisco, Vienna, Paris. Um, and so um, there, there are two answers I have to that. One is that Berkeley, where I'm based, UC Berkeley, has a strong history of what we call the activist planner. Uh, and the adv and advocacy planning, where there is a, there's an acknowledgement of the drive of the scholar to build a better world, and that motivation featuring into and influencing the scholarship. And so it's not something that I shy away from. And the way I would describe there there are two ways I would kind of turn that on its head to I think make it sound uh, more logical. One is that. If you take if you take what I'm doing and you, and we compare it to some other discipline of study, let's say I was studying hunger, I was studying food food insecurity in the world. Uh, no one would be surprised to say that I was anti hunger and pro food security, <laughs> right? I would say I'm studying this. 
I want to study this, uh, you know, deliberately and uh, logically. But of course, my goal is for there to be less hunger and therefore be to move, be more mm-hmm. food, food security. And so in the realm of transportation, what I see is I see a, a car centric transportation system in the United States and in, in some European cities that has led to corrosive air pollution that has led to runaway climate change and carbon emissions and has led to, uh, you know, scores, uh, unreasonable levels of pedestrian fatalities. And so I don't look at that dispassionately. I look at that as, as um, alarming trends that need to be solved and need to be improved. Uh, and so that is a driving core of my work. I, I think of my work as ABC, anything but cars, because I see cars as specifically responsible uh, and and central to what ails a lot of city life. So the, the other way I would I would put it is that um, this this happens a lot sometimes in public meetings where you have someone say you have someone on a board of transportation arguing in favor of a bike lane and someone would say well aren't aren't you a cyclist don't you have some kind of conflict of interest fighting for this bike lane mm-hmm. and the way to always turn that around is say well are the rest of you car owners. Like, do you car do car owners have this kind of conflict of interest uh, that we would say it's a little suspect for a car owner uh, to be arguing against the bike lane because it serves their interest? So in some ways, uh, people seem to be um, a bit more um, a bit more sensitive to someone having a kind of sustainable transportation ethic. Uh, and them them worrying that that muddies the research where we worry less about someone who's, you know, driving a polluting SUV having any kind of uh, ethics. So so I don't shy away from I'm a bike a- uh, advocate in San Francisco. I'm a member of the San Francisco Bike Coalition. I appear at City Hall in favor of, of bike infrastructure. So I see the advocacy and the scholarship uh, uh, being beneficial to both. That said, it's really important to me that the work, the academic work, and, and this is not my first paper, it's really important to me that the academic work stands on its own. And so I try to be incredibly explicit about the methods, the materials I'm using, the conclusions I'm reaching. I, they're, they're quantitative, they're replicable. Uh, for many projects I've done, I've posted my original data sets on my website so that other scholars can download that. I'm always willing to share the data and I always source where I get it. And so um, I don't ever want the work to um, uh, have any type of asterisk next to it. And I don't believe it does. My work, thankfully, has been cited so far by other scholars, which is which is always a really nice uh, piece of validation. Uh, And I've worked with with planners and communicated my findings to planners. Um, That said, I think that um, any dispassionate view of transportation systems in the United States uh, would take uh, some level of alarm around the status quo and believe that status quo to be unsustainable. So that's my position. Mm. So on that uh, topic, uh, tell us uh, how people can read mm-hmm. uh, your academic work, hopefully uh, free, mm-hmm. so they can they can click into some of your papers that doesn't have to have an academic subscription. And also um, on this particular paper. So can people... Mm-hmm. Uh, get this particular paper that you've written on on Paris uh, in a free form. Absolutely, yeah. So, um, and this paper, I'll start. This paper is open access, so anyone can read the full text. They can download the figures. Uh, they can uh, see the the citations I'm citing, uh, all for free. There's no subscription needed. Uh, it's it's in the journal Transport Findings. If you go to findingspress.org. That'll take you to the journal page, and this article is called Treating COVID with Bike Lanes, 
design, spatial, and network analysis of pop-up bike lanes in Paris. Um, a simple way you can find this is just going to my website. It's www.marcelmoran.com. That's my first name, last name.com, where I have all my articles all available to read without any library subscription. I have all the PDFs. Anyone, anyone can read those. Um, and so uh, Berkeley has worked hard to help its scholars uh, publish in an open access way. So there's actually a library mm -hmm. fund I take advantage of, and that fund can pay for the open access fee uh, that journals require. And then so I can make sure my work is, is available to the general public. This is all available, marcelmoran.com. Uh, my email is provided on my website. It's always fantastic to have people re reach out that have questions or they want to do a similar study where they live. Um, I'm thrilled uh, to hear that type of thing. I have a profile on Google Scholar. You can just Google my name on Google Scholar, Marcel Moran, and you can see everything everything I've written. So it's all available for, for free uh, without any uh, barriers. Excellent. And that's very comprehensive. Thank you, Marcel. However, one more last thing. How can people, because we, we, you reached out to me on Twitter, so yes. how do people contact you uh, via other social uh, uh, networks, uh, specifically Twitter, I yes. guess? Yes, yep. So I'm on Twitter. Um, it's Mar at Marcel E. Moran, M-A-R-C-E-L-E-M-O-R-A-N. Uh, that's my Twitter profile. I'm on LinkedIn as well. I have a UC Berkeley email address that's on my website. You can contact me via email. Twitter, Twitter's totally fine. Um, you can send me a direct message. Uh, and I'd, I'd be happy to, to talk to uh, planners, advocates, um, researchers, and everybody in between. Thanks to Marcel Moran there. And thanks also to you for listening to episode 294 of the Spokesman Cycling Podcast, brought to you in association, as always, with Jensen USA. Watch out for the next episode popping up in your feed real soon. But meanwhile, get out there and ride.